From Chicago, welcome to Three Degrees Discussions. I'm your host, Mike Vasquez. It's a very interdisciplinary problem. And, and I think that's part of what draws me to it because I enjoy, you know, pulling those interdisciplinary teams together. Um, I mean, as I'm a materials engineer by, by background, but, uh, you know, one thing I loved at Lockheed was being a part of an integrated product team because I, I could sit there and look over the shoulder of the stress engineer and the designer. And, you know, I got a lot more, I, I didn't had no desire to do what they knew how to do. I, I, <laughs> I appreciated it a hundred percent. I never wanted to do it, but, you know, just sitting there and watching them doing it, experiencing it with them, just, I, I always felt like made me better at what I was trying to do because we, I understood where they were coming from and I could then convert it into, you know, the materials and manufacturing solution that we could make it work. That was John Barnes. John is the founder and managing director of the Barnes Group Advisors, a global additive manufacturing consultancy based in Pittsburgh. He joins the podcast to discuss his career path that started in defense and now impacts numerous industry sectors. We also talk about his team's work during the COVID pandemic, and he shares advice on building a team with diverse perspectives and skill sets. Welcome, John. And why don't we just get started like we do with most of the guests of you know, where did you get your start in additive manufacturing? My start came in uh, the late 1990s. Um, I was a younger, I was a young engineer at uh, what is now Honeywell uh, Aircraft Engines in Phoenix. And we had joined a CRADA with Sandia National Labs with nine other companies to uh, push a technology forward. It was two of the scientists were leaving the lab to create uh, a new entity, uh, which is now known as the as Optimac. Uh, and and what we were working on was now known as the lens process. Uh, so it was kind of an interesting thing to be involved with because the other nine companies, you know, so we had us, the jet engine company, and you know, you'd expect like the usual suspects with uh, Lockheed Martin was there, but. Ford was there and Hasbro was there and 3M. So it was just really interesting uh, to kind of take in what what all these different companies saw out of this process. And uh, so my my usual joke at this point is this, because I was the least valuable engineer <laughs> at the time, I was I was available to go work on this project, you know, with Sandia National Labs. But uh, you know, for a young engineer, it's awesome because you get to go to Sandia. You get to see all this great stuff and, you know, of course, looking back on it, you know, just how incredibly lucky I was to, to have been given that opportunity for, for how much it's grown since that period of time. Right. And the experience you, through that and seeing a lot of different technologies must've been invaluable even now. I mean, in, you've been running the Barnes Group Advisors for a number of years, but the Kind of hands-on experience with so many different technologies through your experience is probably something you draw on every day. It is. I mean, I think we take it for granted. Uh, a lot of the team have, uh, you know, we always say we've, we've used the technology, we've qualified the technology. <clears throat> uh, you know, I've been fortunate. It, I probably didn't think about it until this last year that I, I think I've worked, I've made stuff out of every additive form uh, you know, that's out there. Well, at least that we define that we officially define. Um, so from binder jetting to sheet lamination, um, 
and you know directed energy from from its beginnings um, all the way through to uh, you know some of the older technologies SLA and and whatnot and just having had that experience that uh, you take it for granted but um, most people most people wouldn't um, you know and and that's call it uh, the, the, <laughs> the luxury of working in defense, perhaps, um, that, you know, we have very unusual problems to go solve sometimes. And so it does take, a, you know, being aware of a lot of different manufacturing technologies. So as, uh, you know, at, at that point in time, it, it was maybe not, you know, sheet lamination at that point wasn't even considered to be a, an, add, an additive technology necessarily. It wasn't defined as such. It was just another way to make, you know, the, it's another option to make a uh, kind of a heat exchanger, which is what we were interested in. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, so I think, I think I, I, you know, again, once again, I just keep thinking that uh, I've been extraordinarily fortunate <laughs> in my career to, to have done that. Uh, but I also think it's a little bit like you, you know, you create your own luck. Uh, you know, I was always the type to be sticking my, my nose into projects to see where my group could help. Uh, because we did, you know, a lot of times we certainly at Lockheed, we were always making weird stuff and groups around us were making weird stuff. And our group was responsible for helping them make weird stuff. You know, maybe we only need to make it one time. So we had unusual technical challenges, but we also had unusual programmatic and cost challenges. And I suppose at the same time, you get this really unique inside preview of so many new technologies being in defense, right? Like stuff that may not come out. I mean, you may not see really at a trade show for a, a few years and certainly applications don't come out for three, four, five, even 10 years down the road. So you have all this kind of historical knowledge of where things came from, what were the first iterations of the technology and the, that material and um, I always find that interesting in, in the additive manufacturing space because it's, it's, you know, we say it, it changes quickly, but some things it takes so long to get kind of out into the public space to, to really see how the, the full potential can be realized. Yeah. And I, I think that we had and at some level, it was like a great job to have because not only did you get to kind of explore that cool space, but you know, you became like the best friend of the company that was trying to do it. So we knew that we had very peculiar problems to go solve. So we, you know, we had some, you know, funding to be able to apply and say, hey, could you, could you make this a little bit faster, a little bit stronger, you know, put more power into it so that we can, um, we, we need more strength out of it or, you know, whatever the metric that we were choosing. And it was always like, all these directions that these young companies could go. And, and so we were always just coming in saying, what could you be over here? If we, if we gave you some money, could you be over here? Cause that's, that's, that really solves our problem. And, um, you know, there was, there was a lot of competition for the funding necessarily, but, um, I think, like I said, it was a great job to have. I mean, because you, you were, um, kind of a, a friend of the industry and you know we didn't unfortunately for us and nobody on my team you know took that for granted so we were we were pretty tight with our funds we had to be uh, you know we didn't have when when we looked at our peers over at like boeing for example they had the commercial airplane business to kind of uh 
you know, add to their R and D coffers. And, and we didn't have that. <laughs> we, we, we had significantly less. So we were, uh, we were trying to cover the span of, uh, airships, which traveled at, you know, peak speed of 35 knots to, um, hypersonic weapons that were, uh, hot and going quite fast. So, uh, made you kind of place your chips on things that, that, you could be successful doing and, and you'd make a difference doing. Right. And, and so you got your start in defense and, and, um, and in Phoenix and kind of the West coast. And for the last few years, you've been running your, your own company, the Barnes group advisors. How did that get started and what was the, the motivation there? Well, it got started, uh, based off of my last job, actually. Uh, so I, I had been living overseas in Australia and was running a research program for the National Science Agency, the CSIRO. And um, we'd made the decision, you know, as a family to, to move back to the U.S. And so I went to work for a company called RTI International Metals. And so on my first day, we were still living in Australia and I was, you know, working remotely for the first three months until we could because the schooling system is obviously <laughs> different than it is in North, the Northern hemisphere as are the seasons. And, um, they said we were getting bought by Alcoa. And so that kind of put things into, you know, some question as to what was going to happen next. And once we arrived in Pittsburgh, um, we, you know, moved into the Alcoa building and then they it's mentioned that they were going to be, uh, splitting the company, uh, and creating, what is now known as Arconic. And so it was just kind of like a, a continually shifting kind of milepost. And uh, so eventually it was a kind of a convergence of events. It was just kind of like, well, this isn't the job that I was necessarily you know, interested in when I came on. It's a little bit different mission. Um, this additive thing really seems to be taking off. You know, I have a decent level of experience across a, a wide spectrum of um, positions. And uh, kind of had an idea that I wanted to pursue as a startup as well, and I needed to be separate. So that that was kind of the essence of it. It was uh, really kind of saying, well, this additive thing is is gaining momentum. It's 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 real. It's on airplanes now. Uh, you know, my team had had just qualified the part for the A three fifty. So that was uh, giving me a lot of confidence that this was it. And, and the thing that that I noted was is that routinely I was always being asked if I knew, you know, somebody someplace. And just because I'd, you know, been bouncing around the industry, I, I, you know, don't consider myself to be an extrovert at all, but I had pretty good connections because we were, I was, you know, part of my job at Lockheed was connecting people. Part of the job at Arconic was, you know, connecting people and companies. And, and so I thought, well, you know, maybe that's something that people would pay for <laughs> and lo and behold, they will. So I think it's a, it's, it's, it's a culmination of, you know, just the way that what I hoped would be true, which was, you know, if you do a good job for people and make some good connections and, and, but with a sense of purpose that, you know, people will find value in it. And it's been a pretty rewarding process. Um, uh, you know, as, as you know, and, and I'm sure, you know, the challenge always is, is I always tell people that it's, it's terrifying and exciting at the same time. Um, uh, because there's, there's never, it seems like there's, 
had no idea. There's so many questions. I mean, there's so many questions that people ask, uh, and it just never ends. And I and I always amaze that I don't have answers to most of the questions. I didn't even know that a lot of the questions existed. So um, I think that's been uh, a learning for me, which doesn't you know necessarily have anything to do with the company, but uh, we. Uh, it's been a it's been a fun ride and and it's been enjoyable because other people have come to want to be a part of it and so this is kind of the team that we have uh so we've and how many people are you guys up to now yeah we're up to 14 but but not all full-time yeah. so you know part of our model is accepting um people who just you know they, they may be retired or they may be a lecturer at a university so they don't um they can't or don't want to work full time doing this. Uh, and in one case, you know, we've got somebody who's retired from 30 years of Boeing. They're, they're too early to, you know, watch Matlock all day. Uh, and they don't really enjoy playing golf. <laughs> so th- this is the kind of the perfect thing for him. He, he can, um, uh, maintains his connections in the industry. He gets to do some technical work and we don't force him to attend staff meetings. So he, uh, it's kind of a, a win-win although i do see periodically on linkedin you guys have your your happy hours on friday so there must be some sort of interaction at least um yeah <laughs> so that, that's that's yeah that's how you know you're being successful when people voluntarily <laughs> come uh to join in on a zoom session and, and enjoy a cocktail in the afternoon so yeah. it's been um you know that that that's been kind of a learning for me we we typically don't do hadn't been doing staff meetings and for all the reasons that you'd expect, you know, it's just like people don't like them. Uh, there's a, some value in the communication. We, we do make sure that we're communicating. We do uh, kind of weekly highlights and we do quarterly sessions where we bring um, everybody together. And then we do an annual get together. We won't, of course, we won't be doing an annual get together this year, but we're going to work out an alternative way of getting together. And so the, what what started off was look we don't know what's happening with this pandemic and this quarantine so let's just kind of you know get together and and not talk about we don't have to talk about work we we start off playing you know some games that you can do online uh you know so one person beams it on their laptop and you join on your phone and you you can play these things it's pretty funny uh, and you, you, but you're learning more about the other people too. So while I know everybody, you know, I have a pretty good, most cases, a long-term relationship with the team. I, I always forget that they don't often have that connection. Their, their connection is through me. They may be aware of the other person, but they don't have a, a personal connection to them. And um, so it's been very good for that. And I, but I keep learning about, you know, people on the team. And, uh, and I guess they keep learning about me. They still stick around, so it can't be too horrible. <laughs> Although I wonder at times. But I, I found it to be really interesting. I mean, it's paid rewards that I hadn't imagined. And, uh, you know, I think for me, um, when I look at, like, how Laura and I, Laura Eli, um, how we were... I think we're an interesting pair to kind of manage that because she, she compliments me in, in ways that, um, well, we just compliment each other from a skill set largely. So I find that uh, the combination has been really interesting. So 
those, 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 as we call it, the half hour, half hour social hour, um, has been, um, you know, a great investment of time and has provided, uh, me with kind of an appreciation of learning that, that I certainly wasn't expecting, um, but I'm better off for it. Sure. And, and certainly during this COVID time, we were talking a little bit before this started that you guys have actually done quite a bit of work and, um, and helping folks around the Pittsburgh area and coordinating some of the, the relief efforts related to the pandemic. And you speak a little bit about that. Yeah, we, um, you know, we, we were <clears throat> sort of connect, uh, back and forth over, it was actually over a weekend um, where I had some connections at, um, so Dr. Jay Morris at, at the Mayo Clinic and Andy Christensen um, out in Colorado. So Andy had a medical device company that he sold to 3D Systems. And, and um, so we were just talking on the weekend. Uh, this was really back in either late February or beginning of March. And uh, trying to get us, what, what is really happening? You know, I mean, one of the casualties of, of these types of event is the information is hard to come by. And, and it's, it can't, it's obviously not as bad as some people are saying it is, but it's not as good as other people are saying it is. So you, you just don't know what, where truth is. And, you know, so it was in that kind of conversation where Dr. Morris really, I think he was telling, telling us what he sees and Andy and I were just kind of like, okay, well, we've, we've got to do something. I don't know what it is, but we've got to do something. And so I, I called my team together uh, with, with Andy and we kind of described the situation and what we thought would be requirements for that. And so that ultimately became the, the austere mask that we haven't spent a lot of time talking about, but we, we ended up working um, collaboratively with the, the VA and Dr. Beth Ripley's team out in Seattle ultimately wound up in a, in a crater. At the same time, though, we um, became connected to this group in Pittsburgh that was kind of stitched together by, you know, it was really just one of these weird events where um, I think John Hartner from X1 um, started uh, asking people to um, participate. And then uh, Marcus Schmelius, uh, Professor Schmelius from uh, University of Pittsburgh. And then we had ANSYS. And, uh, you know, I'm going to forget some people, but uh, UPMC, uh, which is based here in Pittsburgh, medical um, insurance, uh, you know, the medical people, um, we were discussing, like, how do we create filters? You know, how do we make uh, different types of devices because of this mask shortage? And um, so I think University of Pittsburgh and X1 kind of went down a path of, uh, we discussed metal filters and specifically, and, and this was kind of a conversation. I said, well, you know, it seems to me like if we do a metal filter, that's a, a an interesting component because you can sterilize it relatively easy. You can drop it in boiling water, you can run it to an autoclave, you know, you, you, and then you just use it over and over again. And when you're short on things like masks, um, you know, you don't want to, those weren't made to be reused. Um, but if we could adapt this metal filter and it filters out the virus and you can reuse it, that that's kind of a, a nice combination. So they went down a path. Uh, we 
we you so know, kind of using, tried, was that using binder jetting and, and yeah so it's okay. really looking at because the traditional way you'd make a metal filter is through uh, powder uh just centered powder filters and an effect of binder jetting you know can allow you to do the same thing so that was kind of their twist on it um we did look at you know what was currently out there on the market to as a as an alternative just to say okay well maybe we can go get a membrane from a beverage filter and we can get it to do the same thing. Uh, so th that was one path. And then um, we kind of led a path looking at what, what I would have called a tortuous path. So this is the idea that if you create, uh, you don't have to make very fine features, but you create a path. So it's like a design that you're forcing air and the particles will, you know, um, basically collide with the walls and, and that then creates its own separation. And so we ended up partnering with uh, Wabtech and uh, SLM Solutions and Entopology uh, along with a few others. But we kind of came up with a concept. We, um, you know, Wabtech had been, had designed particle separators before, but nothing, you know, for this size scale. And uh, what it found, what we found was, is we were pushing the boundaries of printing, um, really, because to get to the details that we wanted to get to, effectively, all you were doing was contour printing. You know, so it was, it, you had to trick the printer into um, doing no fill and, and only do contouring. And and it, you know, some printers like that, and other printers were okay. So fortunately, with SLM Solutions helping us. Uh, Kyle, you know, figured out how to how to control the printer into doing what we wanted, and so that that allows allowed us the flexibility to say, okay, well, you know, if we have a requirement for this size or this wall thickness or this opening, um, now we've got an ability. We know what our we know what our machine is capable of delivering, and we'll have to you know adjust accordingly. And and then another thing that we learned along the way. And I'm sure you, you know you'll you certainly would appreciate this is that you know creating lattice structures in CAD is not an enjoyable task. So you know then we we just happen to ask you know we forget how we I think we started with Brad at Brad Rothenberger at, at Anthropology and he's like yeah we'll help sure and um, so you know their software is very good at making lattice structures especially repeating lattice structures so you know it saved us all that design time and trying to you know, CAD a uh, lattice structure as a filter versus just, you know, having entopology or, or, or our code go in and calculate something. So there was, but it isn't a hundred percent of anything. So it was, um, we used traditional CAD where, where it had advantages. We used entopology where it had advantages. And, and then we used the printing capability that we now knew. So we could, you know, do these fine features so we could, tell the printer, you know, only contour here versus the rest, you know, we need to do, you know, conventional uh, printing with it. And uh, so it was, uh, it was, that was a really interesting experience. And so we had just within that little community of Pittsburgh, you know, we were reaching out to Anthropology in New York and SLM Solutions in Detroit and the VA in Seattle, uh, ANSYS, which is located here in Pittsburgh, X1's in Pittsburgh and, um, and then, you know, there was a, a loose affiliation with Texas A&M, you know, and, and it kind of impressed me that Pittsburgh had this reach, 
And um, so that, that, that was, re it was rewarding anyway to be working with this to try to solve this problem. And so we, you know, we designated ours the forever filter because it would last forever. And uh, so we're, we're still working on some development on that with, uh, with WebTech. Um, and, you know, I think uh, University of Pittsburgh and, and X1 are still kind of working on the, the centered design. Um, but, it, uh, but it was interesting because later on I came across some research that we were doing with Carnegie Mellon uh, in their engineering and public policy class. And they, they showed me this uh, statistic and they, we were looking at how Pittsburgh compares to other places which are kind of up and coming like um, Alabama, specifically the Huntsville area and you know north and south carolina so you know, south carolina has been very ambitious with uh, getting manufacturing especially from uh, european manufacturers but the connectedness isn't uh like pittsburgh's so much better connected globally uh through these kind of either personal connections or cognitive connections uh, versus alabama and the carolinas and so they basically the crude way to think about it is that those states can can continue to write checks to companies to come there. But if you come to Pittsburgh, you're then immediately an order magnitude better connected. And, and that to me was, was um, really kind of a fascinating thing to learn throughout this whole process. So you think I know, is that because of the university connection, having Carnegie Mellon and University of Pittsburgh, these very global universities locally? Versus... I, I think, yeah, I, I think that has a lot to do with it. Pittsburgh has a high degree of, um, you know, advanced degrees per capita. So, you know, academics are, are naturally inclined to talk to other academics. So I think that's a component of it. But the other component is, is that Pittsburgh, you know, still maintains, uh, you know, some of its cultural identity through, it was a big German population here. So there's, there's still a very large German chamber of commerce. Um, there are, you know, we're sister cities to Sheffield, you know, Sheffield and Pittsburgh are very, very similar in most respects. So I think those connections also help people have maintained their family connections um, back in, in Europe. Uh, so I think that probably has something to do with it. It's a, it's, I'm sure there's a better explanation than what I'm coming up with, but I, but I think it's fascinating. And once a Steelers fan, always a Steelers fan or, or still, <laughs> Stillers. As Stillers. Right, as <laughs> Go Bucks. <Yeah. laughs> um, and kind of speaking of the universities, I mean, part of the kind of diverse range of pro projects that you guys do throughout the additive space, not only are commercially focused, but you guys, do a lot to help propel the next generation of additive engineers and, and people in the industry um, through some of your work with uh, I think certainly Carnegie Mellon and others. Do you have any kind of recent stories about, about that work? Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, you know, for us, it's, uh, as we always tell people, you know, we're, we're a consulting firm. It's, it's how we do business, but we're, we don't like, to be called consultants, um, you know, there's a definite vibe that consultants give off. It's what we do. Um, I think we're helpful to that end. You know, we recognize that we need to be where, where I think we're different is that we, we make it a point to be kind of part of the fabric of the industry uh, because we've, a lot of us have been in it for a while. 
And so whether it's um, being an adjunct professor at Carnegie Mellon and, and going and talking to those classes, uh, either teaching or giving them a, a perspective from industry on, on how to do things. Uh, we recently sponsored the engineering and public policy class because for me, I love that stuff. I love the combination of policy and process economics and engineering. I think that's where engineers, you know, ultimately uh, provide huge amounts of value. But that I know I'm biased because maybe I wasn't as strong as <laughs> with free body diagrams as some others. Um, and and then we also do uh, we've done a senior project uh, for the last two years with Medtronic at Purdue University, and um, you know part that that has allowed us other things so we we really try to make an impression on them with you know the whole processing properties uh, performance triangle that you know additive is still that is that is a reality just because it's additive you know it still matters the the process of additive greatly then dictates the microstructure which then dictates the performance so you really kind of have to take a look at it. And, you know, the, the, the universities just haven't caught up yet to to kind of convert um, or, or to include processing to also include additive manufacturing. You know, it, it is a popular subject, uh, but not all the universities have, have kind of caught up to that yet. And, you know, we've had uh, we've had an intern uh, from CMU. Um, also, you know, important for us is is kind of the gender equity issue um you know because i've got two daughters it's something that's you know close uh, to me and you know we've we've taken a look at it and it's you know we we'd we'd you know we'd love to be able to hire you know just you know have as many female engineers as we do male engineers and we certainly have that opportunity i'm not suggesting we don't but if you look at it from an industry perspective about 20 percent of engineering degrees uh, today are awarded to to females, so there at some point industry has no ability to hire female engineers because we're we're not graduating enough female engineers. And I don't necessarily have reasons uh, for why that is, but we we try to provide incentives and reasons uh, for you know women to get in there. Certainly, just talking about awareness of the different types of engineering degrees that are there, what you do with an engineering degree. You know, I don't. I, when I look back when I was in high school, the only reason why I was interested in engineering is because I loved planes and I wanted to be a pilot. I was going to be a naval aviator, like, you know, Top Gun. And, uh, and then I got into school and I was like, okay, well, this engineering thing's hard. Um, I, I should probably design airplanes. That seems like a better solution than flying them. I can always fly an airplane later on. But that's how I kind of got into it. I, my parents weren't engineers. I wasn't from a kind of a, you know, a technical family. So I didn't have an awareness of what engineering was. And so I'm sensitive to that subject, uh, making people aware, uh, specifically women, because if they don't go into engineering, they're clearly not going to get an engineering degree, then they're not available for people to hire it. You know, for me running this small business, uh, it's, it's the balance of the, of the people and sort of the personalities and the background and everything that I think gives us a better answer a lot of times. So, you know, we, it's important for us to maintain that kind of diversity of thought and, you know, it comes from different academic degrees. It comes from different personal backgrounds, but that's, that's one thing that's, that's, uh, 
you know, important to us. And I, I don't, honestly, we don't, I don't know that we know how to, we're sort of not going to solve it ourselves. So we just try to make a little bit of a difference, uh, you know, where we can. And so we have people that donate time to Missouri University of Science and Technology, to University of North Texas. We have people that work at Penn State, uh, lecturers in the UK. Uh, I also am an adjunct professor at RMIT University in, in uh, Australia. And so wherever, you know, wherever people ask for stuff, I think we're, we try to be as generous as we can with our time. Um, and then we also, everybody donates time with uh, different professional societies and being on committees. Uh, so I'm an AM advisor with uh, SME and uh, I'm, that's been a that's been a very positive experience for me because it's also being around another people a lot of people I think there's 14 or 15 of us that all have a lot of experience in the additive world and um, I, I, I'm very happy that you know half of our half of our team is female and, and half's male so we have this kind of very balanced view uh, of when we when we go discuss stuff and I think that gives us a bit of an edge and, a, and a, an advantage back to SME. But, uh, you know, we're also involved. I, I serve on the SAE AMS uh, reviewing specifications, which, <laughs> you know, isn't, <laughs> isn't the most fun, I'll, I'll be honest. But thank God there's people out there doing it. And uh, I, I just try to provide some experience where I, when I can. Uh, so, but it's, but it's important because the, the industry is growing and, I just think that young people like the industry, but they'll stop liking it at some point. And, and I don't know how we keep that in there, but you know, manufacturing has suffered because people don't find it compelling or interesting. And, and I think people don't look at 3d printing or added manufacturing as manufacturing, which is good at some level uh, because they, they don't have the con the negative connotation uh, association with it. So, I don't know that 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 was that was a long and winding path to answer your question, <laughs> but that there's a that's a big subject I think. Right, and and for me, I think the the fascinating thing about added manufacturing, and you probably see this every day with with your team and the types of work that you're doing, is you're answering very different types of questions. It could be a materials question, it could be a process question, it could be a design question. And all of these uh, challenges in the industry require different perspectives, different educational backgrounds, and to it's a, to get to yeah, a, it's a, a solid answer. It's a very interdisciplinary problem, and and I think that's part of what draws me to it because I enjoy you know pulling those interdisciplinary teams together. Um, I mean, as I'm a materials engineer by by background. But, uh, you know, one thing I loved at Lockheed was being a part of an integrated product team because I, I could sit there and look over the shoulder of the stress engineer and the designer. And, you know, I got a lot more. I, I didn't had no desire to do what they knew how to do. I, I, <laughs> I appreciated it 100 percent. I never wanted to do it. But, you know, just sitting there and watching them doing it and experiencing it with them, just I, I always felt like made me better at what I was trying to do because we. I understood where they were coming from and I could then convert it into, you know, the materials and manufacturing solution that we could make it work. But, you know, additive is so incredibly interdisciplinary 
And that's one of the things we try to tell people in our training. You know, we, we talk about that it's, it's a team sport. These, <clears throat> these devices are, you know, quite complex at, at one level. There's, you know, optics and physics and um, chemical engineering, mechanics and materials and mechanical engineering. I mean, there's so much going on in there uh, that, you know, just requires that kind of team approach to get the best out of it. Right. And, and speaking of that and adding on to some of the Pittsburgh connections, you guys have a pretty unique uh, initiative going with Neighborhood 91. And, and do you want to tell us, some, tell us more about that? I was reading a little bit that it was the name came from, I guess there's 90 different neighborhoods in, in Pittsburgh. And this will be number 91 with a focus on uh, supply chain and manufacturing. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a um, it's been a uh, a very interesting and rewarding project to be a part of. I was uh, again fortunate uh, through some connections uh, learned that the airport, uh, the Pittsburgh airport, was uh, putting together this innovation campus, and uh, the reasons for doing so was really trying to promote. Um, they they sit on a lot of land, so it's not widely known. It's a fun fact. So for your trivia questions. Pittsburgh is the seventh largest airport um, by landmass. So it has 8,800 acres. Wow. Um, so that allows them to do some things that other airports can't. And so when they look at real estate development, they've got quite a lot of land that they can develop into things, which then helps drive the need for air travel to and from, you know, any kind of region. And, uh, I got asked to go to a meeting, you know, it was about a year and a half ago. Uh, it was at the University of Pittsburgh. The air airport CEO was there, Christina Casadas and Chancellor Gallagher from the University of Pittsburgh and a whole host of other people. And um, So it happened quite quickly. You know, once we kind of pitched the idea of this additive manufacturing and the supply chain issue, and if you look, you know, we just drew a circle of two hours around Pittsburgh. You know, so you get every, you can all the, go all the way that encompasses Cleveland, goes out to state college and through West Virginia and Ohio, uh, the entire supply chain for added manufacturing exists. It's just not connected. And so the idea of just bringing it into a 200 acre campus, uh, started to make a lot of sense. And that's, you know, one of the things that we found is, is limiting additive manufacturing at the moment, specifically metal, uh, is this disconnected fragmented supply chain, it's adding in costs that, you know, we can't afford and we need to get cost out. And uh, so it kind of progressed pretty quickly from there. And so we worked with um, the, the airport authority on uh, some of the marketing. And so initially we were headed down the path of, you know, a name that was an acronym and then, we we kind of had a thought about it, which was, well, you know, that's that's kind of out there. It's been done. When I was in, a, in at the CSIRO, we uh, we created an, an additive manufacturing lab, and we had a, a contest. And one of the guys came up with uh, Lab Twenty Two. Um, Twenty Two was the is the atomic number for titanium, which was the origin of that particular group. So this was a lab, you know, lab 22, it kind of gave it like area 51, you know, flavor. So we, we went with that. And, uh, so the, the team went off and they came back with a couple of options. And one of the options was neighborhood 91. And, you know, somebody who's not from Pittsburgh, you, you hear the story about the, the 90 distinct neighborhoods in Pittsburgh. 
so then it just made a lot of sense and you got mr rogers neighborhood and uh it you know the the fact that you don't uh necessarily i don't need to buy a bandsaw mike if you've got one i just go across the street and use your bandsaw you know i'll pay you for it i'm happy to pay you for it but we both don't need bandsaws so that's goodness there's there that's an immediate cost benefit to both of us um so that's kind of the idea around this thing is that the it's a supply chain campus where we we're working to get each um, point of the supply chain represented we started with parts manufacturers and we're looking we've got you know now a test lab we've got a heat treater uh, we're looking for inspection we're looking for powder production you know so all these other elements and the uh the idea is is that you know we're we're the invisible hand of the market takes place you know there's an incentive for those people to do commerce with themselves we also are are encouraging this behavior because we've uh, through the airport and state uh, have made investments in infrastructure so we will have argon recycling on campus we will have a microgrid uh, that will provide very resilient electricity so there's no need for uh, UPSs or generators or any of that we're providing a central powder storage facility so people don't need to spend money on outfitting a special corner of their facility for storage of, of, of powders you know recycling of argon is not an inexpensive proposition but once you do it the the cost of, uh, of argon drops dramatically and if you're making metal powders that's a huge component of your cost you print things, you use argon. And when you heat treat things, you use argon. So it's a pervasive cost element across the campus. So we we kind of turn that argument when people say, well, do we have to do business with, with each other on the campus? And we're like, well, you don't have to, but I think you're probably gonna want to. And, and I think probably the next thing is, is that people will wanna do business with you from the outside because you're getting this inherent cost benefit. So, it's a it's a pretty interesting project to be a part of. Uh, you know, I'm not a I was not born in Pittsburgh. Um, my my mother uh, was, and so that's that's kind of an interesting twist because not only does every Sunday she ask me why we're not done with Neighborhood 91 yet, but uh, she wants to know what's going on. <laughs> she wants to know when uh, parts are going to be started, to, you know, to come out and uh, all of that, but it's uh you know it's it's not every day you get to be part of you know building a production campus and i and i think that was an important thing so we wanted to go to we we made a special effort to go visit university of pittsburgh and carnegie mellon and and some of the other stakeholders and said this is a production campus we are not doing research development when we're successful and we've got people on site producing things they're going to have problems they're going to need r d they're going to come to you and like everybody got it immediately. There wasn't, there wasn't any consternation about it, but we didn't want people to be concerned that this was duplicative of any way. And so I think that's, that's another really interesting thing about Pittsburgh is it has a, a, a willingness to just to sort of work together. It's not, it's not a very arrogant city. It's got a lot of civic pride and, um, and they, it's been, it's been easy to work with people here. So that that's been encouraging. Awesome. And so as we start to wind down the conversation today, you guys have also been doing um, some interesting discussions along the lines of supply chain with your kind of summer leadership series. Um, before we 
go? Do you want to just uh, tell people where they can find out more information about the Barnes Group Advisors and then maybe preview a little bit the um, leadership series that you guys have coming up? Yeah, uh, we have. We've taken um, this summer. We, we decided that uh, we kind of step out of our comfort zone a little bit and uh, do this leadership, summer leadership series. So the first topic was supply chain. We did a survey. We, we brought in some key people from the industry to talk about what's really happening, you know, and, and have a important to us was actually to have an actual dialogue. Uh, so, so that wasn't just like people advertising their capability. Um, next week we're going to be having, uh, on, or I should say on July 30th at 11 AM Eastern time, we're doing the second installment and we're specifically looking at production and additive manufacturing. So, We've got a, a really nice uh, panel set up. Uh, Jill Krishner from SLM Solutions, president of North America. Uh, Jonathan Meyer from AP Works had been a long time at Airbus before that. And uh, Anjani Achanta from Baker Hughes. And um, so we've kind of, again, got a value chain proposition going there. The, uh, the dry run that we did you know, almost took us a full hour and we didn't, <laughs> we didn't, <laughs> we still had plenty to go. So I think it's going to be uh, a really interesting, like all these individuals are, are, are fascinating to listen to because they've got a lot of experience in general, but they've got a lot of experience in additive. And I think part of our conversation is, is that, you know, qualifying things in additive is really the same process and qualifying them in, you know, any, any manufacturing technology, but there's some, there are some uniqueness that additive brings. So if you want to find people want to find out more about it, they can go to our website, the Barnes Group Advisors, uh, the Barnes Group, and we've got more information about it there. I think we're close to uh, maxing out our registration, so make sure that uh, if you if you're interested, don't wait till the last minute uh, because I think we're we're limited on how many people we can host. And uh, but we will have a recording that will be available um, afterwards. And then our, our last one is going to be in another month, uh, so the third in the series, and it's really going to focus on what have we learned, you know, so, which I think is a rich question <laughs> these days. Uh, what have we learned about PPE? What have we learned about supply chains? What have we learned about ourselves, you know, throughout this process? And so we're going to have a, a, almost a, a CEO, um, a senior panel to, to kind of go through that and look for what I feel are I think where all these individuals have great leadership lessons, uh, whether they're truly, you know, the traditional leader or they just emerged as a leader and decided to paint their own direction. Fantastic. And we'll post some links to, to all those sites as well. So John, I appreciate the time today and thanks for the great conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's been, uh, it's been fun.